Hey, everybody. It's your guy, Greg Bendian, here at the Progcast. And this episode, I think, will delight fans of the jazzier side of things that I do, uh, and, and even the, the idea of a progression in jazz music. That's certainly going to come up today when I'm speaking with my friend, bassist, and all-around incredible musician, Hilliard Green. How are you, Hill? I'm good. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's, this is uh, this is very, very fertile ground here. Um, I just, so in case people don't know, Hill has worked with just some of the greats of of jazz in general: Rashid Ali, Barry Altschul, Billy Bang, Kenny Barron, Carl Berger, Cindy Blackman, Santana, James Carter. Uh, it, it's just incredible list. VJ Iyer, Frank Lacey, Steve Nelson, Bern Nix, and you know, a longtime music director for Little Jimmy Scott. So there's a lot to cover here in what I call, well, I stole it, but if you think about <laughs> those days of the art ensemble of Chicago and, and what was going on, I think of great black music, ancient to future. Yeah. Yeah. Artists over Chicago. Yeah. Growing up in Iowa, I became acquainted with them that back then. They were definitely an inspiration. And um, hopefully, um, I just got a call. I've got my fingers crossed that it's going to happen. But I got a call from somebody <clears throat> about doing uh, a concert where we do the, do the music of Threadgill's. Henry Thurgill's heir. And so it's, you know, <laughs> I'm hoping it's going to happen. <laughs> you know, and I guess you, I don't know if we talked about this, but but some of the listeners might know, I, I was a student of Steve McCall. That's right. That's right. That's right. So yeah. when I was in high school, I was able to get high school music credit for going down to the East Village to study with, with Steve at the Threadgill studio. When they had oh, just God. relocated from Chicago to the 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 not yet gentrified Lower East Side. <laughs> oh man, <laughs> um, I'm envious of you, man. I wish well, I would have done that. <laughs> I was very precocious as a teen, yeah. Yeah. and I jumped from prog rock to prog jazz. You know, and, okay. Right. And air air was was a model for me. Uh, having to have trios or smaller groups. I guess my first group was a trio, winds, bass, and, and percussion. Okay. But yeah, uh, the uh, the music of air. I even covered one of those pieces in my one of my early trios, uh, Pale Street. Uh, okay. You guys going to do yeah. Pale Street? I I, I I don't know what we're going to do. I'm just, I'm just, he just said we're going to do, 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 do his compositions. And the phone call was less than five minutes, and I've just got my fingers crossed. This like is with Threadgill. No, 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 it won't be with Threadgill. It'll be oh. with uh, Mar I got the call from Marty Ehrlich. Oh, so, cool. Yeah. So and um, so I'm not even sure if I should be announcing it or not because um, it's just, this hasn't been confirmed yet. But well, it's uh, certainly great just sounds, to yeah. say that yeah. you know we talk yeah, about yeah. repertoire, yeah, and the repertoire of of, of great progressive. Black music certainly includes that book of airs material. Yeah. So, and um, 
my my girlfriend Stephanie Griffin. She 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 worked with um, Threadgill earlier this Threadgill earlier this year at a concert he did at Roulette, and uh, and she was you know we were so enthusiastic about the, our next cat that came a street cat that came into our house. She named him Threadgill. <laughs> Thread named her Threadgill. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. So you know we we've uh, we've worked together recently, Hill and I. Yeah. We have a lot of people in common, but we worked together recently with keyboardist Dave Bryant from Warnett Coleman's Prime Time, playing some Warnett, playing some of Dave's stuff, a lot of free improvisation. Yeah, and it just seems as though uh, Cecil Taylor being one of our common connections. Yeah. Maybe we could talk a little bit about your time with Cecil and if you could tell me about what that experience was like. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. I'd, of course I'd seen, I'd seen Cecil around New York just at, you know, because, you know, he hangs out a lot and stuff. And, but when I was, when I was playing with Jimmy Scott at Tavern on the green and um, he had come down several times just to check out Jimmy. And um, so, yeah, he came about six, seven, eight, nine times something like that it came a lot you know and he, he come in and it was so we, you know you know so we got to you know know each other by face and everything else would and, he hang with jimmy yeah, yeah yeah they they would hang yeah you know they, they had the, the mutual respect wow. and like as you as you know um cecil was a, you know was a, was a walking encyclopedia of um uh jazz history and it, you know he, there i don't think there's anything he didn't know Right. So, you know, but so, so then um, after one of those gigs, I ran into him downtown at uh, Bradley's and he said, let me get your number. Let me get your number. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> he, he said he was starting a big band. And so, um, uh, so of course I gave him my number and everything else like that. And then the word got out when um, the first rehearsal, when the audition was, and it was really kind of a cool audition because everybody that showed up and played was accepted. You know, it didn't matter. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, you had guys with a lot of experience and guys with limited experience, but what year? it just didn't matter. Ugh, let's see. That would have been somewhere in the mid nineties. My, 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 me and dates, my brain and dates don't always. Just don't, generally. Uh, yeah. Let me think. We were playing with, yeah, I'm pretty sure mid to late nineties, if I if if I remember right. And this was in Brooklyn? Uh, uh, we started rehearsing in Manhattan. Uh, yeah, we were starting to rehearse at the knitting factory, which was still in Manhattan at that time. That's when we that's where it started. Uh and um so we, you know, we just, then first day we started rehearsing and that's when I got the, got the understanding that, you know, he wanted me to be the, the concert master. So, um, so I, you know, started organizing rehearsals, started, you know, um, you know, being a concert master, you know, start and stopping the band, you know, giving everybody instructions about when to do, you know, when to go. And, and so I, he had seen me, the reason I brought that up, it's because I, he had seen me, saw me when I was working with Jimmy. I was the musical director for Jimmy's band. 
And so, you know, he, I guess he, you know, witnessed my skill set in that regard. And so he thought it'd just be appropriate for his, his thing. And it was kind of cool because um, I had to rely, because uh, I, I grew up playing, grew up playing in orchestras and concert bands. And um, uh, in order to organize that band and, and deal with that band, I had to rely on stuff I learned in high school, junior high school, and even element, elementary school. So I was going way back, you know, way back to use, you know, understand techniques and stuff that I, that uh, how others I knew um, ran, ran large ensembles and how to do it. And I was kind of fortunate because in high school, I was able to, the, 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 uh, the band director, this uh, Mr. Swigger, um, uh, uh, allowed me to run the pep band in my senior year of high school. So <laughs> I, was, I was conducting the pep band. And then one time I, I had an embarrassing moment where I was con conducting the uh, Star Spangled Banner. And so everybody's, at that point, everybody's, you know, it was, a, it was the basketball, it was a basketball game. So every, at that point, everybody's eyes is on the band at the, at the sporting event because you're playing the Star Spangled Banner. And I went, gave the upbeat, gave the downbeat, gave the next beat. And at that point, the baton flew out of my hand. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, it was in front of God and country. <laughs> People in the band were laughing at me and everything else, but that was just one of one of many embarrassing moments that I've had as a, as a professional, as a as a player. And so but. So tell well, me. Oh, about... so wait a minute. It's, 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 oh, sorry, getting back to Cecil. Yeah. yeah so we, yeah, this went on for several months, running as a big man, and it was it was great because you got to really learn how learn a lot about how Cecil think uh, thought. How well, he let me just things. let me interject at this to just yeah. ask. So, what kinds of things did you do as the music director to get okay. that music to work? Okay. What did you have to yeah. do? Yeah. So. Um. So, if you wanted to, with with any with, with any large ensemble that you know you have, you almost always have a conductor. And my my position was very similar to that, even though I was playing bass at the time. Yeah, I'd be the one that was, it was you know, okay, we're going to start from such and such a spot. Um, I also had to keep the the keep the charts organized. I had to organize rehearsals, keep list of keep con um, keep track of the personnel. Um, I even did some hiring. I even did some firing. Um, uh, and he would, he wouldn't write out his stuff ahead of time. He would just, he would just yeah. dictate to everybody. And, and so, um, if there was confusion, you know, I, I saw that there was confusion, I'd be the one to try and sort it out. Um, and, and, is he giving voicings? And, is he giving cells? What is he giving? He, yeah, he's giving cells. He's giving lines, you know, that would go up and down or, or 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 back, you know, backwards or forwards. And when he would give voicings, he, he'd say, you know, which 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 section. You know, he had the saxophone players, the wind saxophone players, the wind players play this. Uh, he'd have the basses play such and such, and he'd have the. Uh, maybe the really high voices play such and such. And if they're a vocalist, he'd have them, you know, sing such, but you know, he'd, he'd tell them, he'd tell them which, which, which voice, which um notes 
he would want where. And so, uh, so everybody had to break that down. It, they, they were, the reserves were long and arduous, but, um, but, you know, really, really got a, a you know, really got a, a real sense of how he, how he, how he makes his music, how he made his music. And how did he organize this music? It would, it, he was a prolific composer. So he, he would, um, he'd have a piece in his head and he'd say, okay, it's, starts with this so uh let's say I'm, I'm just making stuff up right now but let's say uh okay oboe start with g go up to a go up to b go down to c and then back up to f and then uh saxo uh uh altos play repeated d d d d d d d and and then you know a similar thing for the for the other instruments, and then that would be like a cell, and then he we we get that kind of standing up straight, then he then um play the you know do the do the next same process for the for the next cell, and then you know we we try to play you know just try to play through it. Well, let me ask you this, knowing. Yeah. Knowing about how Cecil's music is organized in terms yeah. of these cells, yeah, was there much said or experimented with on different ways of doing each cell, or did cells have sort of a vibe that was associated with them? How plastic was the material? How plastic? Or, uh, you know how how variable would would these cells be? Yeah, they, you know, they'd be kind of like. Inter, kind of up to the players, but then when we sometimes when we got to the actual performance, the stuff would just go, could go could go you know just sideways you know and it's not 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 come out as much, and then but I think as we did it more, we would have a tendency to do the same thing again and again, you know I think everybody was just getting it was kind of like settling in people were getting more familiar with the process um uh so uh it's so long ago at first one of the first concerts i just remember saying this is just, this is just like this is just chaos but then as other con as we did other other concerts later it just became it seemed to become more and more concise and and so i just think you know as as we did it um it became more organized but for, but um, at first it was it was it was kind of tough to tough is to that, follow. Is that through self policing or group concept, or is that you directing people? Probably a little of both, you know, little you know a, a little of all of it, you know, exi you know exactly, you know, I might be able to say okay, uh, let's say he we we would do something play a line or something like that and you want to hear it again. And so, you know, so after the third or fourth time of hearing it again, it would start to be similar every time. Be but before, you know, it was kind of like chaotic because everybody's trying to feel each other out, you know, but as we did it more and more, it became, it became um, a, a little bit more, you know, more organized. And I think it was between the players and what Cecil and what I might say, 
um, sometimes I would have a, you know, I had more of an opinion of like, oh, we should do it just like this. We should do it like this. But, you know, everybody in that band was, you know, was, was also an accomplished musician. So they had their own idea of how, how, how something should go. And that was perfectly valid as well. CSU might want CSU might have wanted certain things in particular, but if he heard something else um, that somebody else has started to do or something like that, he would go with that. Can so, you think of an example of what what he would say, what he wanted, what he was looking for, how he'd articulate it? Let's see. Not. Sometimes with the directions he would give, I couldn't quite understand what he was, what he's, what he's trying to go for. So it was kind of hard for me to tell um, exactly what he meant. Um, uh, but I just, I kind of remember that, uh, that, We would just, you know, we would basically we would just do something and just keep doing it, and then it would just kind of evolve into something, or morph, you know, morph into something or evolve into something, and and so it it the sense of direction of the piece, you know, would eventually become clear, and then there was room for improv and stuff like that, and um, and then with that many people being dictated to, you know at first people you know get it wrong or make mistakes or just don't understand what what was said and stuff and um if somebody was there at Wednesday's rehearsals and then they got to Thursday's rehearsal and they weren't there and then they came back to Friday's rehearsal or something like that then they have to get the notes from the from the rehearsal that they missed so that added confusion and stuff so uh but it was just all trying to sort all that kind of stuff out but the more we did it you know, the more cohesive it became. The first, the first, I remember the first concert was, it was, there were some, you know, highly chaotic moments. Uh, so, but, it, but um, as we did it more, it, it, you know, it was like, wow, this is, this is pretty cool. Um, so to answer your question directly, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer that right now because it's been so long. I'm not sure I can answer that exactly. But right you know, now. just if if this would would be of interest, uh, I always felt that when it was the, the band with me and William Parker, uh -huh. that we were feeding off of Cecil. So I think that that is that possible that that would go on that he would play phrases and then people would to call and response with him because that seemed to be a part of his thing all the way down the line. Yeah, you know, when when we were doing the big band, he wouldn't. He did when we were when we were like rehearsing the big band. He really wasn't playing much at all, hardly at all. Now, when you played trio or something like that, that you, as you know, he would play. He was playing constantly, but when we were doing the so um, he laid out. Yeah, yeah, right. He was. He was just there. He was just. He was there. You know, he would just um, tell. He'd just tell people what notes he wanted played and how he wanted them played, as far as direction. Um, you know, up, down, soft or loud, forwards or backwards, you know. Um, yeah, I should have brought out some of the scores that I have um, uh, to help refresh my memory. But yeah, but then um, on the concerts, he would, he would play with us. But 
um, at, during rehearsals. No, he really, he really, he didn't play much at all. So during so, the concerts, then what, what's the relationship between the piano material and the rest of the ensemble? Yeah, it would be like, you know, the ensemble would be doing what it's, you know, what it, what it's been doing and stuff like that. And of course he knew the piece, so he would just, you know, he just play along, you know, um, and yeah, you know, but it was kind of like, uh, and it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like he we were playing a, uh, we were playing, uh, it wasn't like the season was played like a chariot or something like it wasn't necessarily like that. It like he, you know, he was out front and we were just playing, you know, the piano, the piano would be positioned off to the side of, you know, of the orchestra. And sometimes he played a lot of times he didn't play. Really? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of times he didn't play. It was just, you know, really more about the ensemble. Yeah. I just, I just remember him ask, asking him one time, all right, where, you know, where did you, uh, where'd you get your, how'd you get develop your ideas of how to orchestrate? And he said, I'm going to give you three names, two you heard of and one you haven't heard of. And he was, he, you know, at that time I was teaching a, a class for early jazz bass. So I was familiar with a lot of a writer, you know, big band writers from, from the forties. Um, and sure enough, he mentioned so-and-so, so-and-so, then he mentioned the third name, and he was right. I hadn't heard of him. <laughs> yeah. One was Lunsford. Oh, was I Lunsford. was hoping yeah. it would be Lunsford. So Lunsford. Okay, yeah. what was the other? Yeah. I can't re- It was so long ago, oh, I can't remember right now. I, I know, as you say, I know my, my memory's not the best. Lunsford, uh, I'm, still, I'm still reeling from the Lunsford sounds. Yeah, yeah. And uh and you know, it was just uh I'll probably think of it eventually, but I, I, it's not coming to me right now. And the third name, I it just it was somebody I'd, I'd never heard of, you know. Mm-hmm. And I was pretty familiar with the with the names in, in those days. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. But it, it with him it was just like, you know, it's about the ensemble. I think you know, I kinda like thinking about it now, just uh, this thought just came to me. It's like when he's playing along with the band, he's probably thinking more like, "Oh, I'm when the, I'm kind of like in the position of Count Basie, yeah, not not I'm I'm playing, but I'm not being the featured person, you know." So I think it was probably more like I, I think that's how he saw himself in a, in the in the orchestra. Ellington. So, yeah, Ellington. Yeah, yeah, same same kind of thing, but um, but yeah, so it was. So, but yeah, so I, I remember right. Yeah, most of the time he, most of the time he didn't play. If I remember right. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Sometimes he wouldn't, but not most of the time I don't think he played. He was just there, you know, to observe the orchestra playing as, you know, playing his music. But yeah, he, man, he just, but he, he could, he could just compose and compose and compose. He was, he was like a, a water faucet. You turn them on and just like, it just go, you know. About how many works would have that band had in the book? Uh, God, the book became about this thick, if I remember right. So some things we'd only do once, or some things. uh, I never never counted. How hard would it be for you to find any of those charts? Um, I probably got them in a drawer right here. Should we pause? 
Uh, okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I might be able. I might be able to put my hands on it. Okay. Hold still. Hold still. Well, sometimes you get what you wish for. <laughs> if, you, if you saw my uh, Cecil Taylor episode where I I was discussing the organization of Cecil's music. I didn't have scores on hand, but I think that this is kind of unique and special that Hilliard Green had the presence of mind to preserve scores from uh, his project with Cecil Taylor. Hill, tell us about what you have and, and let's have a look. I'll try to describe it to people also that are, are not yes. seeing us, but hearing us on the podcast, but go ahead. Okay. Okay. So the first document I'm going to hold up, it says, it's just, I wrote list, list, list of Cecil tunes and you know, I must have made a, a list of ones that were, you know, that we worked on and, and kind of planned to do or maybe not do. But the first one is called The First One. And then uh, the next one I have on the list is June 5th. I don't know if you can see this or not, but June 5th, 95. So June 5th, 1995, you know, it was a continuation of the first one. And next one we called after that was D flat DC. Probably the first, you know, first um, motif, notes of the mo first motif. And then this one was called May 1st. And this other one was called A&O. And I called the next one after that EEF and et cetera, et cetera. But, Can you hold it a little closer? It, oh, yeah. Let me see if I can. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Oh, yeah, that's, oh, that's, that's, a, that's right yeah. there, right there. Yeah. Okay. And up a little bit. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Scratch. Yeah. Would that have been a uh, Mephistopheles uh, reference? I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind of... no, so were these your titles or his titles? These, these, these were like his titles. and But so the ones with the dates uh, were just like, that's the day that he brought it to rehearsal and we, you know, and we, we, we gave dictation. Sure. Yeah, so that that's how I would organize some of these, and then uh, some of the date, some of the ones that were like of just the three three letters, it was probably like okay, I'm gonna remember this one because it's the first three letters of the first motif or something like that, like um, like what it says D uh, D flat D C or E E F. Uh, I think that's how I just would you know label that particular piece. Yes. So yeah. And then and so, as far as the, the material itself. Yeah. So that, and then this is one that we worked on on September 5th, 1995. Yeah. So uh, here yeah, you have so, the note okay, names. So, yeah. The note names. Let's see. Okay. I, I have not to register specific. Yeah. Not, not on a... Uh, not at all so, on staff. Yeah, so right. Not nothing not, not, not was on a staff. It was like, you know, the higher higher registers would play this. Uh, sorry. The higher registers would play that first, that top line. The middle uh registers might play the middle line and then uh the basis uh it was telling us to do Arco on F and E. Um and so that and you did that, but then, you know, people oftentimes switched around and everything else. And then uh, I'm going on to the next 
so after we after we played this and held that you see that where that a and d has a fermata you you go on to the next one next thing up here and play that and then as that's finishing you start the the next thing oh so there's dovetailing yeah yeah there's there's dovetailing yeah there's dovetailing hmm. yeah or or not you know but you know there's a lot of times there was be dovetailing and because every you know it was like because there there wasn't any strict rhythm or anything else like that some people are going to play the notes faster than others and some are going to play them shorter than others so it there it wasn't like real precise you know it's not like everybody's going like one two three four one two three no it wasn't that you just played the notes and you just kind of vibed off the section leader you know or, and, it's, um, and what's interesting too is it's essentially five note groupings four yeah note yeah groupings. yeah 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 so that that would be a five lot note and the, groupings. yeah and you see here you know you've got you've got his stacks of chords that everybody would play yeah and yeah there'd be some there'd be two i mean there's some there'd be two three four and and um sometimes even more than that and sometimes it'd be so it'd be so many that it'd be so dense that i would get a, I, my head would hurt you know just get a headache it was so dense it was wild yeah and so could you hold it up higher hill oh yeah sorry so yeah tell me what you need to do because I, I can't yeah great can't keep going it. yeah so okay so now these are numbered sections yeah were they downbeat conducted kind of it was like all right we get through one then at a certain point okay number two then at a certain point number three now would that be an audible point, audible or is or is uh, that no we just like just by hold up fingers you know okay, okay. A, i mean during rehearsal we might say it out loud but during the uh during the performance it's just kind of hold up fingers or whatever right. and then at a certain point he, he may say okay after we get to i'm just making something up now but he said after we get to section eight i want you to go back and repeat section three you know you might say something like that you know That's yeah. not necessarily the case here. I think this one we probably played pretty much straight through. Mm. Oh, you have two. You have repeat marks, and yeah, and there would be a, yeah, yeah, right, right. So there might you know it might be a repeat anywhere. It says like uh, one place it says, yeah, when we say this section, you play it two times, and, and the next section you play it. Is this your hand? I think this was my handwriting. Yeah, this is my handwriting. Yeah, I mean, it really is how I always saw the scores. They were stacks of of groupings yeah. of notes. Yeah. And then they can be played at any tempo with any feeling. Uh, yeah. So I guess if you could comment on that, to, to, to a certain degree in Cecil's music, I feel as though and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, but there's chatter and that there's a certain amount of, of uh, uh, communal voice rising up together and, and 
giving people so much freedom that it almost seems disorganized, but this is built into the concept. Am I, yes. am I far yeah. off? <laughs> yeah, you're, abs you're absolutely right. I think part of me kind of like, he, he, um, I think part of him actually like, like the chaos, you know, like the chaos, you know, I think just, he just, I think he, like he got, you know, got off on it. And so, um, so, you know, you, so you, your, your assessment is absolutely right. And this was like, this was page one of this piece. And this is page two of this okay. piece. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm pretty sure this is one of the ones we performed. But can you go a little closer? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Can you see it? Yeah, and go up, please. Okay, so you, you're seeing sustained bass pedal tones. Yeah, right. Sections. That's something yeah. I know about in his music. Yeah, yeah, yep. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So those are verticalities, but they're also, uh, they're also linear. Yeah. Right. That's really that's interesting. And so, yeah, you know, to, to what degree would these be start to finish played through? Because I had the experience um, that he would start on material and we go so far off that I never yeah. knew if we were in the same tune or if we're now we're in a new tune. Yeah. Um, it was. We. Once we kind of settled in. We would we would kind of play things as as planned um now oftentimes he'd come we we as some composers do you know yeah they yeah, they come out with the thing all planned out you know ready to go and get to a certain point say, okay we got it they come something happened to them between the day that that day and the next day and they come up oh i want to change this i want to change that i want to change this i want to change that so that happened a lot you know and um but he's still working uh, on it. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's it, in his head. It's still developing. You know, even though you know, you know, there's you know, thirty, forty of us. You know, kind of like, okay, we've settled on this. It's it's going to be this. You know, but you come back the next day and change it. You know, and it's like, <laughs> so that that was that was part of the, that was part of the charm of it. And so, uh, so who all was yeah. in this group that you can remember? Oh. Goodness gracious. I probably have an attendance seat because the group fluctuated. Um yeah, it was Steve Swell was there. Oh god, it was marvelous. Uh oh boy. Steve Swell on trombone. Yeah. Uh were these people that were also involved with William Parker's little Yui Orchestra? Some sure I'm sure I'm sure yeah some it was so everybody like that just Daniel you know. Carter I don't think Daniel ever I don't think Daniel ever was ever there I don't think he might have been I'm not sure though um you know it's talking ninety five so uh what I have to see I have to see if I find a tenant sheet then I'll have a better I'll have a, a better recall okay because you, know, you know I would take attendance as well um and um. So, but I have to, in somewhere in the stack of stuff, um, I have to see if I have a tendency just to kind of give up. So, what were the gigs that this group did? 
Um, we played at the Knitting Factory, and they even had a gig at the at Iridium once. Um, I couldn't do that one, but most of the gigs were at the Knitting Factory, and so, uh, you know, he had a he had a good working relationship with the with the Knitting Factory, and so um, we did most of the gigs there. Uh, and one one time, he, it was a big Cecil Taylor night, and so he we did big band did a set, and he did. Um, some other smaller ensemble sets. And then I even did a, um, Dom Dominic Duval did a trio set with Cecil. And then he let me do a trio set with him. And that was, that was really exciting. That was one of the most exciting gigs I ever had. Uh, so, uh, but, uh, yeah, this is like, this is another one called, I, I, we titled it EEF. It's a little hard to see, but mm. yeah. But here, let me show you this one. It's, it's written. It's written in in very tidy handwriting. It's not. It's not my handwriting. It's called part of part of Windows. But somebody who has tight, tight, much tidier handwriting than me. Yeah. Look at that. Yeah. So did you get any sense of of his pitch choice preferences, his intervallic things, his his motific bent? Yeah, it's it's for him, he's basically he would stack dyads. So um for a lot of us who, who play music, yeah, we we think triadic thirds. So we'll stack thirds. So if we're inside of a key, if we're inside the key of C, we would probably will build a chord C, skip a note, play E, skip a note, play G, skip a note, play B, skip a note, play A. And those that's how we that's how we construct our, our harmony. Now, inside the key of C, he would play C at D. At E, at F, at G, at A, and so you know, and the the harmony got would get very would be very dense, and so at first it's hard for people to hear that because it's just so dense, but after a while you kind of go like, wow, this is the coolest thing since sliced bread, you know, and what was really interesting is like when the musical momentum was really at a peak and really at a high point, that's when he, you know, and, and you're at your point where it's just like, oh man, I'm at the edge. What's gonna, what, what could happen next? What could happen next? That's when his elbow would go and play all those, all those diets across, however long his arm was. Yeah, right. so, yeah. So that was that was um, I guess that was like one of the most exciting things. So, uh, but yeah, but it, you know, but it's like this is this is how this is how we hear you know this is how we hear heard music you know that's how we this is how we compose music. And so you know, it takes a while for people to get used to it at first, but after you do, it's kind of like man, it's exciting. Yeah. And I always felt that uh, speaking of that element of uh, density. 
that yeah. that an intervallic interests and the fact that Varez was also interested in this is that it really is kind of city music. Oh. You know, I th I you might you I think you're onto something with that with that idea. I didn't really think about that. He grew up in Long Island. Yes, he did. Yeah. Long and, Island City, Queens. Yeah. Okay. And I remember meeting somebody um that knew him from in high school. And he was already starting this experience with with playing dyads. And this guy was this this guy was laughing at himself because he was trying to tell Cecil, don't waste your time doing this. You're not gonna go anywhere with <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know this guy had been laughing at himself for years. <laughs> little did he know, yeah, yeah, right. Little did he know. <laughs> so, uh, uh, so yeah, so he, had, you know, he apparently he started this process, you know, when he was really young. Cecil started this process, and it just, you know, just developed and matured and everything else. Uh, but I, I now you mentioned else, yeah, being a being in a in an urban area as dense as New York City. Yeah, oh, that yeah. would make sense. Oh yeah, yeah. everything I, I, I at once. Thought, yeah, right, right. Yeah, I, I didn't thought about it like that before, but you're, I, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you yeah, look at and like, you look at Elliot Carter's music, and you go, yeah, city yeah. music. Yeah, yeah, and I just remember the interview with John Cage, and music to him was like the street noise that was just going on, you know, around outside of his apartment. You know. Yeah, like if you uh, want a lot of here. stuff happening to you auditorially, sensorily. Go to New yeah. York City and you'll you will be yeah. satiated, yeah. maybe. Yeah, 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 yeah. But that's the kind of I always yeah. felt like that that was the energy level that Cecil was going for. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and that's, what, that's what happens too. in New York. Yeah, yeah. No, that's what that's what that's what happens in New York. It's 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 you know, um a little less so these days, but especially in those when he was coming up, you know, it was New York has just been it's just always been intense. And so uh that's you know, it's part of the charm although people know a lot of people wouldn't see it as charming <laughs> but it is <laughs> you know i live on a no. really busy street yeah a little busy street and you know i you know i hear you know sirens ambulances uh cars people yelling at each other you know and also you know all sorts of all sorts of things and i mean also, the sirens you know, yeah. are the sirens are in verez's music yeah okay so yeah yeah so it's just that's you know just part of the norm and you know he just kind of he just just you know it's just, just another that's life you know? yes well you know uh hill there's there's so many things we should we talk about but i like this this cecil jimmy's uh little jimmy's connection oh yeah and you know i wish you could uh, give us a little bit of what it was like working with Jimmy. Yeah, when I when I got first got approached about Jimmy Scott, I had no idea who he, I, I I didn't know who he was. I really didn't have, I had no idea. Another musician came up to us, me and the piano player, and said, "You guys want to work with Jimmy Scott?" And in those days, he just said yes to anything. So we said, "Yeah, sure," and. Uh, a few weeks went by, 
and I got this call. The call and it said, um, "Okay, rehearsals on rehearsals on Sunday." And he's like, "Yikes! I can't make it on Sunday. Can we do it a week later?" And like he said, "Oh, okay. Let me call you back." And he called me back, and we, we were able to reschedule. And so we, we, me and the piano player were living in Manhattan. Uh, we're living in New York, and and uh, we made our way out to uh, New Jersey, Newark Penn Station, and we meet this. Um, the drummer that that recommended us, and we meet this androgynous looking guy, you know, that's you know very bubbly and very excited, you know, and we're like, okay, and, and on our way out to the rehearsal, you know, it's like, man, like, do you know him? No, I don't know. I think he, I think his big hit was Masquerade or something like that. And I was like, oh, man, all right, and then we get to the rehearsal spot. Um, the guy who was MDing for Jimmy at the time put the music um, on top of the piano. And I, it was probably all of me. And we started, we, the piano player sets up the, you know, sets up the first song. And I join in. And then we get to the top of the tune. Jimmy starts to sing. And I look like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> It's like I never heard it. You know, it's like, you know, this is like, and and we played a set's worth of tunes, and uh, you know, just went smooth as silk, you know, and then you know, we just we you know we we became, you know, we became his band, and then things just you know developed from there, um, and so you know we had rehearsals did rehearsal and he started to tell us things that he you know had had done and what was you know what was happening with his situation you know how Nancy. Nancy Wilson used to give had been giving him props all along. He was coming out of retirement, so to speak. Um, not not total retirement, but he had people that people had thought he was dead. You know, um, a lot of people thought he was dead. At now, was I he started, revitalized like, by by the Twin Peaks appearance? That did a, that went a long way, um, but the the revitalization actually came before a few uh, sometime before I met him. Because there was an obituary that came out saying that he had died. And he, he describes himself reading his obituary, right? It was a different Jimmy Scott that they were that that had died, but they got they got it it got um, misinterpreted and they, they, and got labeled as little Jimmy Scott. So everybody thought people thought he was dead. And uh, I, I'll tell you the story. You may want to edit it out, but uh, I'll tell you the story anyway because it's it's a cute story. But the, the woman that he eventually became his wife said, was up listening to WBGO and said, and heard that, and this is something by the late little Jimmy Scott. And her blood started to boil. She calls up the radio station. He's not dead. <laughs> and woman, woman puts her hand over the, over the phone, with landlines puts her hands on the phone and says, I got a chick on the phone that says, Jimmy Scott's not dead. <laughs> like, like tug and cheek. And so, well, if you can produce him by 11 a.m. tomorrow, we'll put him on the air. And she's like, you're on. So she calls up Jimmy. <laughs> and, you know, they, you know, they got Jimmy who was living in, in Cleveland at the time to come to Newark. Oh. Uh, uh, yeah, and they put him on the air 
at 11 a.m. at WBGO, and the phones went nuts. <laughs> they just went nuts. He stayed on the phone from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. Yeah, it went Damn. that long. Yeah, yeah. That's so. That was his. That was his big. You know, that was actually his big coming out. Um, and that, that was, you know, that was slightly before I met him. And then we started, we started doing gigs. And then uh, Ruth Brown got him hooked up to play out in Hollywood. And so, um, and then when we got out to Hollywood to play. All these celebrities were coming to check him out. I mean, I was, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds was there. Ozzy, Ozzy Davis was there. Um, uh, 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 Bonnie Raitt. Um, I mean, it was Nancy Wilson, Ruth Brown. I mean, it was a crazy amount of celebrities that were, you know, that were Norman Connors. I mean, it was, I mean, as, you know, move, you know, movies, TV stars, movie stars, music stars. They were just coming out to check out Jimmy. And so all this buzz was created. And so that got that got to the higher, you know, got to one of the higher higher ups at um, Warner Brother Records. And so, long story short, um, he got he got signed signed to Warner Brothers. And so they, you know, they they did a real the first record they did called All the Way was a big bunch of record. Excuse me. And they, you know, they put a lot of, you know, a lot of you know a lot of a lot of money behind it. And uh, that was the thing that um, really, that was the thing that, that you know, really got him uh, back out. We, the, we were doing gigs and what was really interesting was when I first started with him, his, his audience was over 50 and black. When that record came out, his audience was shifting to under 50 and white. Mm. And it was it was one of these things where it's like tunes that we had to do. I mean, like had to do. I mean, had to do, because the audience was like, was, was really expecting it. We just started doing them less and less and less and less until like not at all. Until the point where it's like when we were getting requests or something like that, I said, oh man, how'd that tune go? You know, um, uh, but it was it was kind of interesting to watch, you know, from from the band into the audience and seeing how the audience shifted. But that that made the connection for him to, you know, do the Twin Peaks thing, um, sessions at West 54th, you know, and other things like that. But uh, did but you play yeah, on the Twin Peaks track? This is where I am. I'll be kicking myself in my rear from now until I die. I was coming back from Boston. I was playing with uh, Callie Z and Cindy Blackman. We were done a gig in Boston. And I was like, oh man, I'm just tired. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna turn my pager off, you know? So I just drove all the way back and I got, or, you know, I was like, I'm not gonna check my messages. So I'm just, I'll wait till I get home. So five hours from Boston back to New York. I get home and there's just like frantic messages. Hill, Hill, go, 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 go back, back, where are you? Go back, quit. 
they're doing a session. You know, they're doing a session for Twin Peaks. And by the time I called back, the guy had already hired Ron Carter. Yes, I will be kicking my rear from now until <laughs> I die. Yes. So I think everybody yeah. has one of those, Hill. Yeah, 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 I know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, people tell me, people tell me theirs when they're trying to make me feel better, feel less <laughs> bad, but I still feel bad. <laughs> so, I just, you know, have to learn to live with it, you know, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, there are times that you were there for the call and you got it. And yeah, and right. Did it, you know, yeah, it's yeah. So, so that's so so cool that uh, that you got to work with him for that long. Can, can you talk yeah. about his ear and and maybe his his musical uh, his musicality? Yeah, uh, like you know, Jimmy came up. Um, he. He the his style of singing was apparent to his mother very like almost right away. And his mother encouraged, you know, it was it was first trying to direct because his mother played piano, was first trying to direct him to sing a different way, but then she realized oh, this is just his natural way of singing. And and so uh she, you know, she was encouraging of it. And his he he I remember him telling me that his his father, when he was a little kid, would father said, at church on Sunday, say, "Get up and go up there and sing, boy. Get up there and sing." You know, so it was, you know, his father was making him sing. Uh, you know, and so this is all in church, so it's you know gospel music. And uh, where did he grow up? In Cleveland. Cleveland. Yeah, Cleveland. And so you know that that's that's where his orientation. But also another thing I learned that was that was really I think important to understand that he he played snare drum. In in a drum drum and said that's how we he said that's how we would learn rhythm, that's how we learn rhythm, you know. And what was what what I could rely on with Jimmy until the he still, still start you know got up in age. Well, what I could rely on with Jimmy, I could know that he could hear time well. I knew he could hear harmony well, so I really didn't have to. You know, even though he's back phrasing and everything else, I know that he knows where he is. And so I just like, okay, I'm just going to keep going and he'll catch up. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's, it's not an issue, you know? And so, um, so yeah. And, you know, he also, I mean, he did a, he did a lot of hanging out. So, uh, uh, he did a like, you know, he was, you know, just not only performing, you know, performing a lot, but he was a valet for um, uh, uh, Lester Young. Yeah, he was a Is valet. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he interviews his, his um, he interviews, uh learning one of his big life, life lessons from uh, uh, um, Lester. And so, he uh so you know he was doing a you know he's listened to you know high level cats since he was probably you know is I mean Cleveland was such a vibrant jazz scene he, he was I'm sure from a teenager he was listening to high level cats and he was out on the road in his twenties you know you know performing and and um uh so you know so he you know so I I could I knew that anybody who's done that much listening 
that much hanging out can hear harmony well, you know? So it's not like I, you know, we had a, you know, oh gosh, does he know where he is? Should we chop off a measure? Oh, no, 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 no. You know, it wasn't anything like that. We just like, we just, uh, we just go and, you know, it'll, you know, it'll just, it'll work. It'll, it'll fall where it's supposed to fall, you know? And we just let, we just let, you know, let him be. I'm fascinated by that, that notion of a group sense of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was kind of cool. Cause I think for Jimmy, the lyric was paramount. Um, so, so I, I kind of realized that cause he would, he, he, I've never realized that I would just, you know, I heard him say it, that, that, you know, the, the lyric was, was the thing that was most important to him about it. And so my idea was play minimally so he could just deliver the lyric however he wanted. And so I would just play Miller. And since I was musical director, I would just, I would just, um, by the way I would play, it would kind of cue other players how to play. And I was pretty insistent about not having people rehearse, even though some guys wanted it, but I was pretty insistent about, you know, and sometimes it was a real battle, but I was pretty insistent about people not having rehearsed. Why? Um, because I wanted, I wanted, I wanted people to play with their ears and not their eyes. If they were looking at the charts, if they were looking at the lead sheets, they start to think about the lead sheets. What I want to do, because anytime that any any musician that we almost almost every musician that came across Jimmy's band, even if there was a, a sub for a day or two, was a was a a really well was a really good musician. I mean, you got there were a couple come to coming up. You're stuck with dogs, but but most of the time, almost almost all the time, so it's like it. You know, there wasn't anything that they had. You know, they hadn't really seen before or heard before. You just so. But I really wanted to really if if they if they go in not knowing what to expect and just going to see. Okay, I'm just gonna. Um, because they're they're freelance musicians, and freelancers have the skill to be able to walk into a situation and deal, and that's the skill. I, those are skills I want to have. That's the skills I wanted to have happen when we're playing with you because they're going to listen more, and if they're listening, they're not going to overplay, and and if they're not overplaying, they're not going to get in the way of him delivering the lyric. So. You know, as if they just just kind of walk in and just like with their ears open and just like, okay, I'm going to lay back and just see where things are. Then we we, we could, you know, we could get a good performance out of people who, who had never been there before. Hmm. So, and were a lot yeah, of ballads? What, yeah, it was mostly ballads. So we'd, we'd, we'd start to set off with an up-tempo. Then we do two ballads, maybe three. Then we'd um, do an up te up tempo, um, and then the then he'd he'd insist on the band doing a, a number by itself. He needed the breather. Then we come back and do a couple more ballads, and then and with an up tempo tune. Uh, that that's usually how the sets went, um, and it was it was it was kind of cool because I uh, I became after the first five years I became the MD music director, excuse me. And it was, so 
I was in charge of, you know, calling out the tunes and organizing the tunes for whatever set we play. He, you know, he'd leave it up to me to pick the tunes. And um, and so there's some tunes that we just like let us play repeatedly. And after a while, they just they would just develop into their own arrangement. And they developed in their own arrangement with the input of whatever people were, whatever people were playing, you know. So, uh, like an example, we, uh, we, as I cried for you, we would that we'd almost always close the set with close the night with that, um, and because we would we would be playing it repeated, repeated, it would it it became with its 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 own arrangement. At first of all, at first time we started doing that too, and I didn't like playing it. But by the time the tenth or fifteenth year rolled around, I was fine playing it, you know, often. Yeah. So um, so some, you know, some of those tunes we had, we played, you know, would play would play for 20 years. Um and some 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 were new, but a lot most of the times we tunes we would we had played for we had played for years. And what was the so, typical instrumentation? Uh, uh, court, music quartet, trio or quartet, depending on the budget, uh, the the budget. But it would usually be bass, piano, drums, and saxophone, or maybe trumpet, but usually saxophone. So, and then Jimmy, of course. So there's five, usually five of us on stage. Yeah. And what music yeah, so. was Jimmy into? Like singing? What? Who? Who were his singers? Who were his heroes? Um. One one time in prep for a record, he had me listen to uh, Shirley Caesar. Let me check check out Shirley Caesar. Um, I know that he revered um, Tony Bennett. Uh, I'm blanking on on who else right now. Um, Billy Holiday. Yeah, Billy. Yeah, Billy Holiday. Yeah. Yeah, Billy Holiday. They were cousins, actually, and um, yeah, and Billy Holiday. I think that's probably the person that he revered the most. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, then uh, there was one stint where he worked with Sam. Uh, he was he sang across from. He opened for Sammy Davis for for a while. Yeah, I, I wasn't with him then, but I was. But he, he had. Uh, Did he talk about Sammy? not much i he had he had a bit of another experience with sammy so i i didn't i didn't ask him much about it. i was curious about it but you know he 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 started off the conversation with with a negative story about it so i just left it alone after that mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. um uh but um you know because i yes i was uh, yeah i was i was very curious about what his experiences were with sammy um uh yeah, I'll, I'll, before but I think Billy Holiday was the main was was the main one, uh, and oh, who else am I? For something I'm, I'm drawing a blank uh, for right now, but I, I, I'll and other names will pop up before I'm too long. Yeah, that's uh, interesting stuff. I think people who haven't heard Little Jimmy Scott should go out and listen to him right now. Find some of yeah. his records. What would you recommend off the bat, Hill? Yeah, a lot of people like really, really, really like the all the way, all the way recording. Um, a lot of people like that. Uh, all they like that all the way recording. 
a lot of people like uh, his um, Tangerine recording. That was a big budget recording that Ray Charles had produced. It was released, I think, in the 70s, 60s. And then it got re-released in, in the, I think, the early 2000s. And uh, through Rhino Records. Um, now, my favorite thing that Jimmy sang was, and I don't think this got, I don't think this ever got recorded, but he and Lafayette Harris did a duo where they sang his treatment of the large prayer. Because I think Jim was actually an ordained minister. Um, and so they sang the, I'm hoping there's a bootleg of it. Uh, but out of all the stuff I heard Jimmy sing, that was that was my that was my absolute favorite. Mm. Um so uh so the uh yeah shoot. Yeah, sorry, sorry, things aren't that's, coming back to me as fast as I thought no, they that's, were. That's cool. Yeah, let's let's yeah. talk about uh instead of um ancient let's talk about the future how about uh interesting projects you have coming up because i know that you're going to be performing some of joseph jarman's works yes there's a this will be the second time we'll be performing but um michael gentile and um oh lord have mercy let me uh uh I am so sorry, but my brain is not remembering names. So tell me about this Joseph Jarman repertoire that you're going yeah. to be performing. Yeah. Rob Garcia has, an, along with Michael Gentile, have an organization going. And they were going to, and Rob had worked a lot with Joseph Jarman. And so we're going to be doing his music. We've done it once before, but we're going to do a repeat performance on, on Tuesday, October 10th at IBM in Brooklyn. But he's got a nice young vocalist uh, singing uh, Kavita Shaw, and she's terrific. Michael Gentile, his flute and alto flute, and Daniel Kelly's will be playing piano. Uh, and Rob Garcia is, is the drummers. Uh, I will be doing this for the second time then. And uh, it was, yeah, we had we all had a blast last time, so we're have fortunate to do it again. Uh, I've got my cat visiting me. His name is Finnegan. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> hey. Yeah, yeah. He he comes on when I'm sitting on the bed. He comes for attention. Okay. So, so, uh, yeah, I live with I live with three cats. Um, uh, so the the, then, the early art ensemble stuff was that big for you? Uh, uh, some of it was. Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of it. A lot of it was. It was just. It was uh, Fred Hopkins. It was like. Um, because when when I growing up in Iowa, there wasn't that much, you know, abstract or free play. And then I come across the art show, show. It's like, oh wow, this is a different way to play music. This is a different way to look at music. And so, uh, you know, so it's, it's you know, I ended up getting a couple of those records and checking them out and so on, and uh, getting to know. Uh, so, and then eventually being able to hang out with Fred on the road uh, when I was on the road with Charles Gale uh we were we were on a trio and the opposite group was um 
Fred Hopkins. And so getting to meet Fred, hang out with him, he was a lively guy. And so I got uh, to do a, a trio with Fred and Peter Bratzmann. So, oh, oh man, for that was oh, a dream wow. come true to get to play yeah. with Fred at having yeah. come out of Steve. Yeah. But what yeah. was the group Fred was yeah. in when you were touring with Charles Gale, who, by the way, we just recently lost? Yeah, right. He passed away not long ago. Um, yeah, that Charles is one of the first guys I connected with in New York, and that was in '87. And um, the I remember meeting. Ch yeah, I'm all, Charles was like almost like a force of nature, but I remember when I met him, I was I was a foot messenger in in, in New York City, and I was delivering packages from skyscraper to skyscraper, and I was in Grand Central Station, and I heard this playing, and I said, "Wow, what is this?" And I kept running around looking for it, and, and finally I followed the sound, and there's this guy who's sitting just outside of Grand Central Station with a silver alto playing for whatever change people threw in his, you know, cup or whatever. And uh, so I just started talking to him, you know, I introduced myself. Uh, he let me know when he was performing. And, uh, you know, I told him I was new in town and I was looking for more stuff to do. And so he told me where he's playing and I went to go hear him play. And I was just like, oh my God, this guy's really good. And, then the next gig he had, he said he was looking for some different cats to play with. So he called me and we started working together a lot after that. Uh, and I worked with him on and off in, uh, up until about eight or nine years ago. Uh, but yeah, that was, that, that was, that was a, that was a whole, we played a lot of the knitting factory. We went to Europe several times, played with different players, but there was, yeah, that was a, that was an important experience. That was a, a, an important experience for me to, to work with Charles Gale. Um, and, you know, even sitting through his political rants, um, you know, was, was also, you know, interesting. Um, and, you know, he, but people would, you know, patiently sit through them, even though the, the you know, the, the, the audience that was sitting there was probably, you know, on the opposite side of what of the topic he was talking about. But they were just so, audience were just so intrigued by his music that they just sit through, sit through his rants, um, sit through his rants and just wait for him to start playing again. So, and these were groups with you and Charles and who else? Um, if we first started out with David Pleasant, we did a lot of gigs that way. And then I did some with Michael Wimberley, did a lot with Michael Wimberley. And did uh, some with Mark Edwards, um, Jay Rosen. Uh, one time, there's there's one record where there's uh, two bases, me and Mattel Cherry and David Pleasant. Um, uh, Newman Taylor Baker. Um, uh, there, there's others as well, but the 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 ones that that were there the most often while I was there was um, David Pleasant, uh, Michael Wonderland. Uh, and, and, uh, and oftentimes, you know, the recordings that I'm on were just like live performances that were, got, that got turned into, re you know, recordings. And so, but that was, yeah, it was, it was, you know, it was, it was good to, it was, it was, 
it was a life-changing experience for me. And, uh, and you know, one of those things that was just like, okay, this was, this was, you know, a big part of my life, my musical life. Um, and getting to know Charles, because he was, when I met him, he was homeless and he was living in abandoned buildings and stuff. Um, and he was somebody who was actually very well read. He had even taught a little while at the University of Buffalo, but he was very well read. And, you know, he um, he had the ability to debate just about anybody on any topic. Um, so, you know, uh, so he was, so he was, you know, he was very political. And um, sometimes he had to, he had to, talked to me sternly a couple of times because he, he, he was a very private person and a big part of the reason five, he had to be very private because he, you know, he had gotten death threats. And so, um, and, and, uh, and he, you know, and he talked about a couple of those experiences were kind of funny, but you know, they're death threats. Um, uh, it's nonetheless, um, but yeah, he was, he was colorful, he had, you know, a lot of interesting stories. A lot of, you know, a lot of interesting perspective on life overall. And then just, you know, playing the music with him was, you know, was inspirational. You know, it was, it was intense. It's very intense. But I really appreciated it. Was he really a, um, a post-Albert Eiler kind of player? He, yeah, he was, you know, I think it was, yeah, post-Albert Eiler, but I think it was more like, he, he's you know he started out heavy in 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 a bebop tradition and you know he he had played you know he had played a he had played quite a bit of piano, um, you know before he was he was already playing a lot of piano before I knew him, um, and and uh, but I think just him spending so much time by himself he really just developed his own way of of doing dealing with music. Because when when he when he did his first recording, he was it would I don't think he'd had, I don't I don't think he'd ever he'd ever recorded before, so he was already in his I think he was already in he was already in his thirties approaching fifty, or, or, or already in his forties or something when he first recorded, and um and so he was I think he just and. It was, it was the the guy at Silkart had to be persuaded. You know, they they went to um, this. There was a um, guy from one of, from a record company that was really really hot on Charles, and it would took a you know, it took the guy at Silkart a long time to get warm up to Charles, uh, because it was just something that it was just so unusual. I mean, I got it right away, but a lot of people, you know, they had to they had to take it in three, four, five, five or more times before they started to really get it. So, but it was, it was definitely exciting. So, yeah. Uh, Charles Gale, yeah. one of the, uh, one of the real fire breathing saxophonists of the yeah. new music. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so yeah. what else do you have coming up? Tell, tell us about, uh, what your musical life is these days? Oh, I, yeah. This actually, actually, this weekend, I'm getting ready to um, go to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and 
um, be part of a world premiere that uh, of a theater, a dance theater project that um, that of, of Diane McIntyre. And uh, I'll be playing bass with a, some of my college buddies in the in the orchestra, and some you know excellent dancers. Uh, and it's it's about Diane's her experiences you know around jazz, and she's a very interesting woman. And I really didn't know much about her until I started started working with her, and then I started you know you know learning all this other stuff about her. I'm going like, oh my god. You know, uh, and now this is, I've got an unusual first name. And around the time when I first started rehearsing with her, she, she said, I only know one other Hilliard. You know, and I knew she, and she mentioned she was from Cleveland. I know, know only one other Hilliard. I said, was well, his last name Stevens? She goes, yeah. <laughs> that's the person I was named after. <laughs> she knew she knew him since she was 12 years old and like we're family, they're family friends. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so so she knew, you know, she at one point she had met my parents and everything, you know. And really? <laughs> yeah. So it was like, you know, this is like small world story and stuff. Yeah. But that's so great. I remember Diane McIntyre performing with Cecil Taylor ensemble. Yeah, yeah. And her yeah. dance groups bringing the dance that went with that music and yeah. how how intense it was. It was called Eye of the Crocodile, I think, was this piece at Okay, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah at the Judson she... Memorial Church. Yeah. 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 So yeah, so, yeah. It, it's kind of wild because yeah, because she's really got a, you know. Um, it's it's like sometimes when you work with somebody of another discipline, it's kind of hard to communicate, uh, like where to stop and start. But she's so familiar with music, you can say, "Oh, we're going to start at such and such a spot." She knows exactly what you're talking about. And as she says, "Oh, you know that one that one part where you guys do this not long enough? Can you just you know make it an extra?" And she'll say how many measures or something like that, you know. So she's really she she you know she's very musically aware, yeah you know and of the of the of the language, um, so that that's so it's kind of it's, it's really kind of neat to work. It's really neat to work with her, yes. That's fair. And then she's also just she's, yeah, and she's just a very pleasant and she's a very nice person. And so, so it's kind of it's it's, it's being very cool. Yeah. Glad to hear she's uh, still creating. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't asked her how old she is, and I won't do that. But yeah, she's, <laughs> no. she's <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, she's up there. But she, you know, she's you know, she's she's able to you know still move around and get to and from. And I was like, gosh, if I can be like that when I'm when I'm her age, mm -hmm. yeah, no, that'll be that'll be something. It's 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 inspirational. Um. And then, uh, do you know doing other stuff? I've been doing uh every other steady every other Wednesday at a place called Nama New Amsterdam Musical Association with Frank Lacey uh, leading the band, and he's not only been been playing trombone, he's been been, been playing French horn, trumpet, flugelhorn, um, as and singing, 
and you know, I'm really getting to know just how talented Frank Frank Lacey is and how smart he is. You know, I met him at I met him at at, at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, but by the time he had gotten there, he had already had a, a degree in science from another university. So you know, he's a you know he's a he's a real brainiac. You know, kind of on a, you wouldn't necessarily you know see, think that when you first look at him, but yeah, he's you know, he's one of these brains, you know, brain on top of brain. And Yayoi Ikawa is playing piano, and Taru Alexander is playing drums, and it's and I look forward to this gig every other Wednesday, um, because you know these you know these Yayoi and, and Taru you know just just excellent 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 players, and so it's it's, it's very exciting every time we get together. But New Amsterdam Musical Association, it was like the first Black Musicians Union. Um, and at, in those days when it started, you know, they, it was there was dividing line and Blacks couldn't join the white union. And so so they started their own. And that was the first one, apparently. Um, so, uh, but that place was just, they have jazz there several nights a week. And the guys, you know, been pouring, and so it's just a nice place to hang out, play music. It's a nice place for people to go and hear music. And then, uh, um, I've been trying to do more and more solo bass shows. That's my favorite way to perform. Um, there's a, a project I do, started developing several years ago where I take um, Negro spirituals that were used in relation to the Underground Railroad. They, they call them coded, coded Negro spirituals that enslaved Africans used slaves and enslaved Africans used to escape from slave states to free states. And so I, I'll, I perform those songs um, and talk about their meanings, like Swing Low Sweet Chariot and Wade in the Water and Go Down Moses, you know, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, I'm actively trying to, you know, promote that show and book, book that show. Very cool. Yeah. Well, hell, it's such a uh, pleasure to, to talk with you about all your various yeah. musical endeavors, and uh, yeah, maybe we'll leave it at there for now. But where uh, can people find okay. your music? Yeah, this um, Bandcamp. I think if you just put my name, that's probably the easiest thing to do. Is just put my name in the, uh, you know, in the Bandcamp, and um, uh, stuff will show up because there's stuff on Five Seventy Seven Records, I believe, and then there's stuff on. Uh, um the spiritual records on uh oh my god why am i blanking on the label can you pause it for a second yeah yeah look for recordings on unseen rain and the, the all those recordings end up on Bandcamp. um there's i did that's where i did my last solo record spirituals and uh other records that i've done on that label with other with other musicians um, Matt Lavelle, Chris Forbes, Tom Cabrera. Um, so you can find, find that stuff there. And then the, uh, my girlfriend and I are putting out a, a duo record. She plays viola. So it's viola and bass. And we'll do some some improvisations. Then we do some mashups of some standard classical repertoire that um, like we, we do an, an arrangement of... Uh, uh, Sanson Swan and Elephant um, mm. from Carnival of the Animals. Yeah. Um, 
and a version of motherless child. And so that's that's in the uh, final stages of preparation. I suspect it'll probably be out by the end of this year and early next year. Uh, um, but I think the best place to go is probably Bandcamp and looking, you know, with my name and Unseen Rain or 577 Records. That's and where your website going to be. Website's Hilliard Green. Yeah, my name.com, Hilliard Green. Dot com and make sure you put the green was three e's <laughs> yeah yes. g-r-e-n-e it yeah so that can triple little triple letter score there well yeah Hill, thanks so yeah. much for taking the time to chat everybody my right, guest is Jim bassist musician hillia green and he's doing so much cool stuff i hope you'll go check out what he's doing thank you so much for listening to the podcast as always we kind of try to keep it going into some detail and we are going into some detail today as we will next time as always i love to hear your comments and your feedback you can hit me at bendyandmusic.com and i'm happy to to hear what you think of the shows and musicians and, and listeners music lovers alike so thank you everybody see you next time thanks hill okay thank you very much pleasure to be here thank you <laughs>